Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. to talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. We're seeing a lot of our people, young people, going there away. We should be nurturing them. We should be comforting. We should be guiding them through because we got big country to actually do that. You know, we've been doing that so long. We're still doing it, but because of the restrictions coming in, we're unable to do that, and which is not good. We need to be looking at a better way of doing justice. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Welcome to the first in our summer series where we'll bring you the most important and informative conversations from the program over the past year. June this year marked 14 years since the Northern Territory intervention was imposed on prescribed communities. Next year, the Stronger Futures legislation which followed the initial emergency response is set to end and the prospect of change has raised the hopes of many living under the regime. To mark the significance of the anniversary, a group of concerned Australians held a series of online forums to give voice to those directly impacted by the policy. The endless intervention First Nations speak out included politicians, academics and those living under the policy since its inception in 2007. And as you're about to hear, one recurring theme throughout was the case for greater self-determination in the governance of remote Aboriginal communities with a focus on traditional cultural practice. And central to that is the protection of traditional homelands and outstations. Joining the conversation were Dorinda Cox, WA Greens Senator, Professor of Law with the Law Faculty of UTS, Thalia Anthony, Senior Researcher at the Jambana Institute, Paddy Gibson, and Yolnu Elder, Monganu Ian Gumbala. Let's take a listen. I think uh, our people are very strong on standing and they know what is best to go forward without any in-being process that they think that it's okay for us, but it's not. We know best how to go forward. The things that will help us in the community, there's leaders, there's young people looking upon us to be a driver to take our community, our people forward to where we want to feel comfortable with. As somebody who lives deeply in your culture, works in education, I was wondering if you could share with us your thoughts on why connection to culture is so important for young people and what you think is the best way to ensure that children are healthy and protected. History tells us of our people, the responsibilities and the role that our people, our elders, our leaders before us and now have taken and protected our people, young and old, through things that we know best to give and to go with through our life. And uh, things that needed uh, new things that could come to us should be handed to the hands of the people and to be handed over to us to take that instead of being forced us to do things, which is not 
You know, we haven't had that experience in our past times. History has said that we very strong and we know how to develop, how to manage, how to protect our people, our land. We've been protecting our land for so long and our people. So it's very strong that I stand and talk like this for my people, that it's really things that the young generation are looking upon for us. If we are strong here, our young ones will be strong on taking and working on the things that are coming to our life. I just wonder if you could perhaps explain for people who don't really understand why that connection to country is so important for traditional owners to have and to be able to exercise. Yeah, as you know, everything comes from our land. You know, the resources, our language, our song lines, our practices, it's everything that comes from the land, the law that comes from the land that we practice through our dancing, through a ceremony. That's why it's very important, the protection of, about our people, our land, because the land got everything for us. So that's why we was really protecting from the very beginning to now things that are going in to try and separate that connection from us, we are very strong on stopping it because it is something that we can put aside for our younger generation to be a leader for tomorrow to look after. Things that will come from them to help them be strong as a strong leader and to lead the community and lead their people. And I wonder if you could tell us a bit about why you decided to run as an independent candidate and what you hope to achieve if you were elected into parliament. Yeah, if I were elected in the last election and if I wanted to be elected in the future, the things I want to do is to voice, strong voice from the people, things that they want to see they want to have for their community, for their people, things that can restore their life by protection, protecting their land, everything that the land holds. I could really go beyond that and say, look, you know, have our, our land, have a law of the land be seated with the parliament and recognised by the people, apart from our people. That's how we need to work. Instead of expecting things that they wanted and not us, we need to come together, but with the understanding that things that are needed have to be met. I wonder if you could share with us your views on what a treaty might achieve and how important the process is and just your reflections on that. I think uh, things like the setup of government setting up this uh, treaty and things that may work for the people, there's real answer to that is the leaders, the cultural leaders, the sort of leaders in our community 
They are the ones that will say what should be in that treaty because the things that are really matter, things that really in the heart of the people, that needs to be listened to, taken account, that it's been all those things has to be law that influence the lives of our people. Because we know all those uh, leaders and elders in our community, they have the answer for that. The other area that I guess people talk a lot about, particularly nationally after the Uluru Statement from the heart, is the importance of truth-telling. I was wondering what your view was in terms of how the broader Australian community needs to take responsibility, what steps they should take in better understanding that history and the very issues that you're talking about. I think there's a lot to do with that, to find out about the history of the First Nation people, especially here in Australia. There hasn't been much going on through institutions or, or schools or any, anything that deals with the support for First Nation people. There should be a black history here in Australia. People, history, things that gone through, you know, who holds the land, who is responsible in each of the area across the nation. You know, each got their own way of doing things and holding. That needs to be be known to people, outside people, because the things in that curriculum, health things, you know, they're using stuff that uh, other things. Now, we got things in the, in the, in the bush that we know uh, to heal people. You know, we got educational things. We got all the other things that are setting up now, you know, white society things that are coming in to our services, programs, and saying, look, uh, we want to do this one. I want you to be uh, developing this. But hang on, uh, do you know the history, how we develop and protect our land, our people? That's the sort of thing, you know, need to be known before we are, we are, we are given. But those given have to be given to the right people, the people of the land. Thank you so much for that. One of the impacts of the intervention has seen an increase in overrepresentation of young people and an increase in suicide rates. Just wondering from your perspective on this particular issue, when there's been such criticism of the Western ways of policing and dealing with offending by incarceration, what are your views, particularly from a cultural perspective, about how we can do better in this space in terms of looking after young people and ensuring that they're on the right path? Yeah, I think recently um, in, in my community, we adapted a justice group that uh, designed what we, in a cultural uh, structure, uh, which is... Uh, We've been doing that for so long through tribal things that uh, amongst our own group. We've been mediating, we've been uh, sentencing our peoples, 
that's why I said they need to see the history of that uh, this justice system in our society, in our Aboriginal society. Now, what all those things, you know, the words, uh, you know, that used by the justice system, we have that protocols in place, and we need to utilize that when we're looking after young people who got is really not close to us and not respecting, you know. We go through that every day of our life. And when things happen, they tend to go away from that and follow the white system, the justice system. And we try to say, look, all right, this is our, our things. But we're talking about the lawyers. We're talking about the judge. We're talking about how that uh, process will go with our people, which seem to be not looking at that and supporting that, what, where, where we are and working on that. They're just going in and putting that aside, which is not good for our community to be able to do it because we're seeing a lot of our people in that space, young people going there away. We should be nurturing them. We should be comforting. We should be guiding them through because we got big country to actually do that. You know, we've been doing that so long, long time ago. Now we're still doing it, but because of the restrictions coming in, we're unable to do that, and which is not good. We need to be looking at a better way of doing justice and supporting young people and supporting young adults, male and female. You know, that's the sort of thing that should be in the hands of our people, our elders, our leaders, because the responsibility lies within us. You know, when we have that, we are strong. We are much more stronger, and we can utilize things that are resourcing us, how, to, how that should be working alongside with us. Thank you so much. So powerful to hear your words, Monganu. And what a wonderful way to start our discussions today. It's always a privilege to hear your strong advocacy and your strong voice. So thank you so very much from all of us. Thank you very much. It's now my great privilege to introduce our next speaker, Dorinda Cox. Dorinda is the WA Greens lead Senate candidate for the next federal election, but she comes to that position from a lifetime of active advocacy as an anti-violence campaigner, ex-police officer and small business owner. She's worked across First Nations policy legislation and practice for many decades at the international, state and federal levels. I think many of us would describe her as a disruptor and she's worked across systems advocating for change, for grassroots movements, for climate and social justice. She's been just an absolutely tireless advocate for the rights of our people. So um, it's very exciting to see her take on a new role in relation to that ongoing work. So it's fantastic to have you, Dorinda, with us. And I wonder if you could tell us uh, whose country you're on. Thanks, Larissa. And I've worked for decades in and across social policy and more recently around climate justice and have watched 
the evolution of the Northern Territory intervention with great interest. The interest that I've had was that I was the first First Nations woman and only First Nations woman that sat at the table with the Rudd government to develop the national plan for violence against women back in 2007. So in Canberra, we had a conversation about Nanette Rogers's late line, you know, media article that triggered the NTER, as they called it back in those days. And so, you know, it wasn't until that was exposed did the, the nation then sit up and say, we have an issue in the Northern Territory. And it was sold to the broader public around the urgency and the issues for remote Australia and the issues of child sexual abuse and family violence for our women and children. And I don't think any of us online today or anywhere in this country would argue that that's an important issue, that that is critical and should be at the heart of the work that we do alongside First Nations people in the Northern Territory. And I think that Annie Pat Turner's comment around this being the Trojan horse that was used to go into our communities and more so in the Northern Territory to take away our land is a really, really important position that we need to take. And we need to call that out. We need to do that truth-telling that Larissa was talking about. I quickly just wanted to share a quote, and it talks about June 21, 2007 is a defining date in Australia's history, and it's the date that changed the government and Indigenous relationships profoundly. It stated the aim of the intervention was to protect children. However, while it included some positive initiatives, it also included a range of policies that discriminated against Aboriginal people, describing government policies as a range of coercive paternalism. Now, that comment came from Pat Dodson, who everyone would know as the godfather of reconciliation, but who is now our West Australian senator. And Pat, in saying that, I think really highlighted back then for us the importance of the way that legislation was used to discriminate against First Nations people in this country and that we can't ever forget that. And I think that changing of the relationship basically became the cookie cutter for the Commonwealth government to be able to look at how they tested and tried changing legislation took away the rights, the human rights for First Nations people in the Northern Territory and were able to legislate that to break the spirit, I think, of First Nations people in that territory. It was it was demoralising and still we, we see the legacies and the ongoing impacts from that. I remember being at the table and hearing that in the first month of the rollout of the intervention, it went from 19 to 36 permits that were granted for uranium mining in the Northern Territory. And that was just astounding. And that sticks in my mind from 2008 when I heard that figure. And I thought, this isn't about women and children anymore. This is about a big land grab. And the work that everyone did around making sure that the uh, Racial Discrimination Act was reinstated, the UN intervention that went on in that the evolution and the reporting of, you know, the independent reports that were churned out in relation to income management. We still see the CDC or the cashless debit card or INJU still being in existence. And even last week, they were still talking about it in the Senate. Minister Rushton saying people wanted to remain or had opted in in Northern Queensland on this card is just amazing that the government is so far removed. They think that people can 
just get up and get jobs. We are still the only Commonwealth country without an anti-poverty strategy. So we can't ignore that the drivers of of what's happening in our communities is linked to all of the disadvantaged. Closing the gap isn't doing anything. The closing the gap targets, when we talk about the review of the Stronger Futures legislation, we know that lots of that is about the closure of remote communities and homelands. Um, We know about the housing issues. You know, we know that this is all wrapped up in the millions of dollars that is churned out through the federal government and distributed across the national partnership agreements to states and territories, and in particular, the Northern Territory. And it is up to the Northern Territory government to make sure that Northern Territorians are at the heart of the decision-making and that First Nations people are at the heart of that decision-making. We're the oldest living culture in, in the world, you know, and our connection to our country, is, as Monganui said, is so important to us, our identity, our way of living, our way of being, and our spiritual connection that we have to protect that. So the environmental issues in that state now with fracking, Senator Thorpe was part of the Northern Australian Committee on Friday and heard about the Beetloo Basin and what's happening there. It's just such a a move away from its original intent. So I think that we need to make sure that when we're looking at that and when we're saying how do we do better? If we know better, we should be doing better. You know, if we have a a huge body of evidence, these are some of the issues that we need to dismantle. We need to dismantle the justice pipeline. We need to make sure that we've got good law reform. We need to make sure that anything that comes out of the Senate is sound and is activated and implemented with the true intent of that legislation rather than it just being about doing something because it's election time, doing something because someone wants to be re-elected or a new person wants to step into parliament. So they go with these crazy way out ideas of trying to change the pre-election commitments we've had here in, in WA around how the protection of country is going to happen under our Heritage Bill have not been done. The two major parties are not willing to call this out in relation to what's happening So we have to identify that. We need to have an ask. If we are going to challenge at the highest level the issues that are happening in the Northern Territory around Stronger Futures policy and legislation around the NTER, we need to make sure that we know who we're asking. We need to make sure that when we refer issues to committee that all of the stuff around the hearings and the submissions are recorded. I think that there are so many things that We know as First Nations people, because we live this every day, we live the impact of what law has done to our people, but it's never recorded at a committee hearing or through a written submission. And if it is, we then take it into the media. We use our political activism and we get smart and collectively we start having those conversations. You know, we can't keep talking about not having treaties in this country Treaties are so important, but they can't be driven by government. A treaty will allow us to be at the table. They will allow us to have a conversation about tribal police. We need to start positioning ourselves in a way that makes us equitable in asking for what we want in our treaties. We need to start talking about tribal polices. We can't continue to have Aboriginal justice agreements that shadow the government's agenda 
that don't position us as being the people who are self-determining, who are having our rights. And, you know, we can't continue to keep having royal commissions and inquiries into these issues. It's just a body of evidence, but the evidence no one's listening to. And we have to keep fighting and we have to be unapologetic about that. And I think that once we do that and we collectively harness all of that energy, but also that we start demanding that there's a different process for us to engage in, we will actually get a lot further. Thank you so much, Dorinda. It's such a privilege to hear you speak and hear your wisdom. And we're just so blessed to have your advocacy as well. So thank you so much. Thank you. It gives me great pleasure now to introduce Professor Thalia Anthony. Thalia is a professor at the Law Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney. She works across a a range of areas connected with the intervention, particularly around criminal justice issues, and with a real focus of her research work being on the situation of Aboriginal women in the criminal justice system. It's great to see you, Thalia. You look like you're travelling across country there. I am. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I feel like I'm connecting with Monganu, who's also in a car, <laughs> but also feeling very grounded in this discussion at the same time. I want to just make a few comments about the impact the intervention has especially had on the children who've grown up under this racist colonial policy. And to say that 14 years on, the issues of the intervention are just as real as they were in 2007. Even if we see the sunset clause come to fruition next year and the Stronger Futures legislation be put to an end, there is an ongoing legacy of the intervention that won't be put to an end. There's ongoing issues of locking children up ongoing issues of child protection escalating and children being taken out of family, community, culture, of mining, fracking, of the disempowerment of local community governance. And I think these are things that require ongoing discussions and struggles. And it's funny because when we first started organising and in 2007 against the intervention, it was somewhat known in the community, in public discussions. And I feel like we're constantly having to re-educate people about this policy and the harms of the policy, especially outside of the Northern Territory. And we need to do this work because while it is an issue that affects the lives of people in the Northern Territory, Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory every single day. It's a policy that is being led by the federal government that we are all expected to hold to account. It's a government we we all elect and, and a government that we must all stand up to and speak our truths to the federal government's power. So these discussions and the need to have them continually and to remind people that the intervention may have started a long time ago, but like colonisation, it continues to have a devastating impact every single day. And I think what's really interesting about, including what Dorinda said about the fact that we can have royal commissions and we can have, in a sense, truth-telling forums, 
But the reality is, and John Bunner made this very clear from the beginning, even when the government pretends to be listening, it's not hearing. It's not hearing because it's not taking into account the perspectives of Indigenous people and acting on those perspectives. Instead, it is in many instances acting in a way that Pat Anderson describes as a betrayal of Aboriginal communities. And we see this obviously with the instigating report, Little Children is Sacred, which at the heart of that report was that there should be self-determination over the lives of children in community and women in community. But instead, the government did enact this violent and paternalist policy. But we also saw it again with the Royal Commission in 2017, which in its recommendations, number 10 said that Dondal must shut down, that maximum security must shut down immediately. And instead, just this month, the Northern Territory government announced the expansion of Dondal, the increased security spending on Dondal. It's also subsequent to the intervention enacted laws that increase the capacity for guards to inflict force on Aboriginal children. And let's let's make no mistake that every single child in Dondal is an Aboriginal child. It's a completely racialized and racist criminal justice system. And I just looked at the statistics this week in terms of what the Australian Institute for Health and Welfare put out, and it's clear that the Northern Territory incarcerates more children than any other jurisdiction in the country by a long shot. And yet the government, through recent laws to expand the capacity of courts to impose remand, so deny bail, and through the intensity of police powers and operations in Darwin and elsewhere, that it intends to increase the number even more of Aboriginal kids being locked up. So I think we've got a massive backlash by the Northern Territory Labor Party that really needs to be called out. And the only person in the Northern Territory Parliament was an independent who voted against those bail laws. So I think the Labor and Liberal Party are both completely complicit in this carceral policy that's taking kids out of community and family and I think causing long-term trauma and damage. And And it's absolutely heartbreaking to see how the intervention has acted on so many levels to undermine Aboriginal families. And I have to say, this is one of the reasons why when we may potentially see the end of Stronger Futures, we still have all this residual harm in incarceration, but also, for example, in the Commonwealth Criminal Code, it's still possible for courts in the Northern Territory and in the Commonwealth, in the federal courts, to have racist approaches to sentencing and bail that deny the consideration of Aboriginal cultural customary practices. And this can mean that for Aboriginal people, if there's destruction to their sacred sites, that can't be considered for the purpose of sentencing. So we have this uneven legal system that continues to undermine the rule of law for Aboriginal people. And the effect is to lock up more Aboriginal people and yet deny them procedural fairness when they are before the courts. And I think we're going to all be watching very keenly to see 
what happens with the trial of Kumajai Walker in August, in late July and August, and whether, you know, he is like almost every other Aboriginal person made to face an all-white jury and what justice looks like or what accountability looks like when you have a white police officer shoot a young Aboriginal man. So I think it's really important that we continue to have these discussions. I know Larissa's asked a few questions about truth and treaty. I think it was disappointing, uh, you know, the discussions around voice treaty and truth didn't give more emphasis to the intervention and the need to resist the intervention. And I think it's a pity that Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory are continually telling their truths and living their truths, and yet no one is paying attention. They're willing, willfully not paying attention. And this has, this has meant that for too long, the policies of government are top-down and willfully neglectful of what Aboriginal people are asking. And we saw that time and time again with the Aboriginal witnesses, either in the based in the Northern Territory that came before the Northern Territory Royal Commission, the ones that spoke about the intervention were very clear that it needs to be repealed. That was consistently said before that Royal Commission by Aboriginal witnesses. And yet there was no strong recommendation in this regard from that Royal Commission. They noted the problems of the intervention, but did not take any stand on whether it should continue or not. And I think that was a real lost opportunity, especially because that was a Royal Commission called by the federal government and the federal government's complicity in the removal of Aboriginal kids and and locking them up in Dondal, placing them on restraint chairs, firing tear gas at children, which led to some of them being blinded. All of these things occurred on the watch of of the federal government. And I think we need to continue to place pressure both at a Northern Territory government level and at a federal government level, because while sometimes it can be seen as there's separate jurisdictions, the reality is for people living at the Northern Territory intervention, all these systems play a part. And I just want to finish by saying that what has been really inspiring in the face of all all these policies is just the resilience of communities and families. And I know that it's sometimes very heartbreaking to see how children have been affected by the intervention. There's a really strong emphasis on bringing children up in law and culture and language, and that's been made harder with changes to education policies, with child protection issues, et cetera. But in the face of that, Children are growing up knowing their history. And Holly Del McAway did a thesis on children and the intervention. And they're, they're growing up knowing the wrongfulness of this policy and becoming warriors in this struggle. So I think while there has been a lot of harm, a lot of trauma, there's also been the bringing up of a new generation that can stand up to these policies and will as Aboriginal people have had to do for hundreds of years and have survived for thousands of years beyond that. So I continue to have hope and that's why I continue to stand by the side of Aboriginal people who are struggling on the ground and 
you know, it's an honor to talk today, but I just want to reinforce, you know, whatever I can do to further this. We ran a campaign, Eddie Cavilla and I, recently to resist the bail laws. I think it's small things that we all do that make a difference and that we do them together and keep our strength together. Thank you so much, Thalia, and thank you so much for all the work you do as well. I'm really excited now to introduce my colleague and friend, uh, senior researcher, Paddy Gibson. Paddy's just completed his PhD, which has been on hi- in history, but Paddy was on the ground in the Territory and um, has spent the time since the intervention was rolled out as a powerful advocate and community organiser challenging the intervention. So, Paddy, thank you so much for finding some time to be with us. Thank you. Thanks for coming on at the last minute. But you were an, one of the first people to raise concerns and get mobilised around the rollout of this intervention. So it's great to have you with us to share some of your reflections of what happened and what the legacy will be. Sure thing. Yeah, well, um, look, I'm on Bidjigal land in Arncliffe in the, in the south of Sydney. Yeah, and as I said, it's a real privilege to be joining you and to hear from all of the speakers. And I'd just like to offer my ongoing solidarity to First Nations people in the Northern Territory who continue to live under these disgraceful policies and continue to suffer, and all Aboriginal people, you know, across the country who suffer very vicious racism and discrimination consistently in this country on these stolen Aboriginal lands. I did just want to start this morning with a bit of a reflection. Larissa mentioned that I spent quite a lot of time in the Northern Territory through the whole rollout of the intervention. That started for me in 2008 when I went up and lived in Alice Springs and I came on as a researcher at Jumbana later in 2008. But when I was first there, I was actually unemployed. I I didn't have a job at that time. I was waiting for the research contract with Jumbana to start, but I was signed on to Centrelink. And I'll never forget the feeling of walking into the Alice Springs Centrelink in the middle of 2008 to put in my dole form and being confronted with this open segregation that was operating in Alice Springs at that time. So there was a queue in front of me of about four non-Indigenous people. And then there was a queue to my right of probably 20 or 25 Aboriginal people, countrymen and women, queuing out the door. It was very obvious to me where my line was supposed to be without even making any inquiries because of just how, you know, I'm a non-Indigenous man, how openly segregated and racist the whole setup was. It was quite breathtaking. I could go and just put my form in the regular Centrelink line, but there was a sign up to my right which said the income management line that people were lined up for. People had come in from remote communities, often forced to come in from remote communities to actually negotiate with Centrelink how their income managed funds were going to be spent. So at that time, they hadn't actually introduced the basic card system yet. People were lining up and collecting vouchers from Centrelink for various supermarket chains. Uh, They were getting vouchers from Centrelink or maybe they could try and convince some young Centrelink social worker that had been sent up for the South, you know, from the South for the intervention rollout, convince them that they needed a new pair of jeans and that this was a responsible use of their money and they'd get a little check where they could go down to the Jeans West to, you know, to get their jeans or, you know, negotiate the payment of various bills. 
I mean, this is just such an obscene system. Many of these people having worked all their life, raised kids, you know, whatever, being confronted with a power dynamic that many of them had lived through themselves when the welfare system was in operation, you know, when Aboriginal people were formally discriminated against and ruled over by a protector, you know, often denied access to cash for the work they were doing on stations, having to line up for rations again. So, you know, it was so striking then. But I think, you know, what's given me real pause for thought over the last couple of weeks preparing for these anniversary of the intervention discussions is the extent to which this formal discrimination remains law in Australia. You know, we have obviously a very vicious racism, as I mentioned, right across the country that Aboriginal people face every day. You know, people face the harassment from the police, the persecution by child protection agencies, you know, racism when you go into a shop and you get suspected and followed around by a security guard, the racism that means you can't get a job because of the assumptions that are made against you. This is the day reality facing Aboriginal people across Australia, and I don't want to take anything away from that. But I think it's important to recognise and understand the extent to which in the Northern Territory, it's actually written into law that if you're Aboriginal, you have less rights than non-Indigenous people. Or more specifically, if you live on Aboriginal land, if you actually live on land that your people have fought to get back and have some recognition that that is your land, then the intervention set up a situation where you now live in a prescribed community. And the prescribed communities are then persecuted in a range of ways. They have rights taken away from them that, you know, non-Indigenous people or actually anyone uh, who doesn't live in a prescribed community, you know, has those citizenship rights day to day that are denied. And over that very long arc of 14 years that we've had, I think, and Thalia raised it in relation to the question about the Uluru Statement, I think it is a real indictment, I guess, of the level of public debate and discussion in Australia that this has been allowed to fall away from the public eye, you know, that there can be discussions about constitutional recognition, discussions about making treaties and all these kind of things without any discussion about the fact that we actually have an apartheid system legislated in Australia. How can you negotiate a treaty with the government that actually has you as a second-class citizen under their own laws. You know, that's the actual power relationship that, you know, exists under these intervention laws. And I think so much of the abuse that we have seen, you know, Thalia raised it as well, and, you know, our first speaker, you know, it was very strong to hear, you know, your words about the importance of community leadership and governance in terms of being able to provide a way forward for young people. You know, young people who are terribly discriminated against and brutalised by the Northern Territory Police and by the juvenile so-called justice system in the Northern Territory. The legislation actually says, you know, day to day, you know, if you're Aboriginal, you are somehow less of a human being, you know, with access to rights than if you're a non-Indigenous person. And I think that it's also had a corrosive impact on Aboriginal politics right across Australia. I mean, the whole period of the Northern Territory intervention, we've seen a massive expansion of the extent to which Aboriginal kids in the Northern Territory are being forcibly removed from their families, which, you know, is a result of the bankrolling of a massive expansion in an apparatus to persecute struggling families and take their children away and place children hundreds or thousands of kilometres away from their family, often with non-Indigenous carers, you know, straight out stolen generation dynamics we're seeing playing out in the, in the Northern Territory. 
But it's also meant that across Australia, the whole racist assumptions that have gone along with the intervention, you know, about Aboriginality somehow being an inherent risk to children, that Aboriginal families are just pathological and actually getting kids away from Aboriginal families is in itself a child protection intervention. Like that sort of ideology, I think, has really driven an explosion in child removal, not just in the Northern Territory, but right across Australia. And so I think you can't underestimate the extent to which the corrosive impact that this ongoing policy has had on political life and has had on the racism that Aboriginal people experience all across the country. And just had a few remarks, I think, about, you know, because it is so important, you know, the ongoing efforts, we say, stop the intervention. 14 years later, we're still trying to stop the intervention. What does that actually mean and what does that actually look like now? Because these policies began with a bang, 14 years ago, you know, 500 pages of legislation that transformed the way that people's lives were regulated and the way, you know, that community governance actually operated all those years ago. A lot of those initiatives are now broken up across a range of pieces of legislation that we're going to need to deal with and a range of policy areas that we're going to need to deal with going forward. So I just wanted to touch on some of that now because I think it is quite important. The first thing that people have mentioned is that, you know, the Labor Party shamefully extended many of the original powers put in place by the Northern Territory Emergency Response Legislation in 2007. They extended many of those powers with the Stronger Futures legislation that still exists today. And one of the key ones that I have heard consistent complaints about, including on a recent trip to Darwin just last weekend when a number of people from Borroloola who are fighting very hard against fracking coming into their lands, and I'll touch on that at the end of my talk, but a lot of what people wanted to talk to us about was police brutality and was the way that the police were actually behaving on Aboriginal land. And they have been given powers under the intervention laws that remain with stronger futures, which mean they do not need a warrant to enter houses on Aboriginal land. Police don't need a warrant. They can go into your house any time of the day or night under the pretext of looking for alcohol, because what the Stronger Futures legislation does is it prohibits alcohol on all Aboriginal land, just a straight-up prohibition. And there was some intention in the Stronger Futures laws to negotiate community-based alcohol agreements, you know, that might slightly liberalise the prohibition of alcohol and set up particular dry zones, you know, much as a lot of these communities had actually negotiated with the NT Liquor Board prior to the intervention. There was a patchwork of dry areas in communities that had been actual initiatives from those communities. The intervention wiped all that out and said, if you're on Aboriginal land, alcohol is banned. Huge fines, including jail time, if you're found with, you know, a bottle of beer on Aboriginal land. And the Stronger Futures Laws keeps this going. So if the police suspect there might be something in your fridge, a bottle of beer or whatever, it doesn't need to be a reasonable suspicion. No one's tested that. They can just barge in any time of the day or night. And they do. And I've seen the police actually use this to persecute outspoken Aboriginal families. You know, people who have, you know, led protests against police brutality or this sort of thing, suddenly they find 10 bull wagons rolling into their camp and then, you know, going through every single house in that town camp, you know, using the pretext of the intervention powers. They could never do it to my house, 
they need a warrant if they want to just come into my house. But so that's, I think, you know, one very important thing we've got to understand is the police have got extraordinary powers on Aboriginal land that come out of the way that liquor is prohibited and pornography is prohibited still today. It's open paternalism. So that aspect of the Stronger Futures laws, I think the Northern Territory Police, I don't think you're going to want to give up those powers. So next year, you know, the Stronger Futures laws are set to expire. I think it's very important that there is a hard fight to say, make sure that there is no further legislation to give these racist powers to the Northern Territory Police. That's going to be very important. Obviously, there's communities that want to be dry communities. That's absolutely their right, but that is something that has to be self-determined. That cannot be something that is decreed from Canberra with another piece of racist legislation that gives police those kind of extraordinary powers. Look, the intervention is very, very thoroughgoing and I'm not in my time left going to be able to talk about all the other aspects of the policy and how they're going to need to change, but I will just quickly touch on two. The one, as mentioned, is the compulsory income management legislation. Now, this started in the Territory in Aboriginal communities only, but it has morphed since then. So now we have income management legislation under the Mainstream Social Security Act, which allows the minister to declare any area in Australia an income management area for the purposes of the basic card system or increasingly for the purposes of the cashless debit card system, you know, which exists in a lot of communities and actually quarantines more money than the old income management system. So instead of 50% of your income being quarantined, it's 80% under the cashless debit card system. So that's a separate piece of legislation now, but we shouldn't be under any illusions that it is still an explicitly racist program. More than 80% of people on the income management across Australia remain Aboriginal people. So I think we've heard some mention that the Labor Party are increasingly critical of the cashless debit card. And I even saw a meme on Malandiri McCarthy's Facebook page saying Labor opposes compulsory income management. I think we need to absolutely hold them to that and say we need to actually fight that this will not be imposed on anyone. If people choose to go into some kind of money management program with Centrelink, like the old Centrepay system, you know, that existed where you could actually put money aside for bills and things, that's their business. No one's trying to take that away from anyone. What we need to oppose is the imposition of a ration-based racist system on people who don't want it and have the rights. And that's the final point I'll make is just about the labour relations that came along with the Northern Territory intervention. It accompanied the scrapping of the Community Development Employment Program, not just in the Northern Territory, but right across Australia. So there's big critiques you can make of the old CDEP. It paid pretty rubbish wages, but it did pay wages, right? And they were under the Australian Industrial Relations System. And it did provide funding for local communities to have some self-determination about where local workers were going to work, what kind of programs were going to work. Taking out CDP has basically made most remote communities like unviable, if you like. There's no work there, you know, and there's very little resource for people to be able to provide services to their local communities. It's part of this agenda of forcing Aboriginal people to leave their lands, or as Tony Abbott said, you know, we don't want to support people's lifestyle choices, this sort of racist rubbish. People have got a right to wages and work on their lands providing services for their communities. We need to fight very hard for a properly waged employment program back in communities. And I think that allows people to look after their own communities it also allows people to look after their own lands because that's the thing I'll finish on is, as people have said, they've absolutely gone hand in hand, this racist policing, persecution, intervention laws and massive pressure 
on country coming from mining companies and increasingly from gas companies, right? So we've got a climate emergency. We've got the International Energy Agency of all agencies. This is like the International Fossil Fuels Agency, right? It's a corporate organisation, essentially. They are saying no new gas fields, but the Labor government in the Northern Territory is just approved more fracking. And the Commonwealth government has just given $200 million plus as a cash handout to fracking companies to go into Aboriginal land. So this is a disastrous state of affairs. And I think, you know, supporting people who are fighting to keep the, the integrity of their land has got to go along with fighting for people to have employment opportunities to actually look after their land. You know, that's where the alternative is both to the climate crisis and to the intervention is pay, you know, respect people, respect what they have in terms of the important connection with their land and actually recognise that knowledge and recognise the importance of those communities and that practice. So I think that's the struggle we've got going forward to, you know, fight to end the intervention and re-establish self-determination and funding at the community level. It's a big fight ahead. You've just heard Dr. Paddy Gibson, Senior Researcher at the Jambana Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. You've also been listening to Professor of Law with the Law Faculty at UTS, Thalia Anthony, Dorinda Cox, WA Greens Senator, and Yolnu Elder, Monganu Ian Gumbala. They were taking part in the online forum, The Endless Intervention First Nations Speak Out, held in July this year to mark the 14th anniversary of the Northern Territory Emergency Response. The event was organised by Stop the Intervention Sydney, Intervention Rollback Action Group, Mapartway Alice Springs and Concerned Australians. (laughs) 